Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. It's John Clark at privatepracticeworkshop.com. I'm a therapist, group practice owner, and business coach, helping you build a better business without all the overwhelm. And I'm really excited to introduce my guest for today. It's Victoria Albina. She's a certified life coach, UCSF trained family nurse practitioner, and breathwork meditation guide with a passion for helping women realize that they are their own best healers so you can break free from codependency, perfectionism, and people-pleasing uh, and reclaim your joy. Um, Victoria, I'm super excited to have you today, and I'm just so interested to hear <laughs> how all of this might be affecting our business. I have some ideas, and it seems like you know, uh, codependence is a very hot topic these days. And so I imagine you're quite busy yeah. helping people <laughs> not do that. And uh, I'm so excited, you know, just to talk to you about as business owners, as therapists, I know you have, you have a particular focus on women, which um, a, a large majority of our audience are women, given that most more therapists are women than, than, um, than anything. And um, I'm just so excited to have you today and hear about how all this stuff works. So thanks again for being here. Um, maybe fill us in a little more on kind of, you know, how you got here, or how you got interested in this work and how you help people. And then we'll just kind of see where the conversation takes us. Yeah, right on. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an important topic, um, particularly for those of us in the helping professions, right? We got here for a reason. And it's often because Things like codependency, perfectionism, and people pleasing are part of our internal narrative, yeah. not just the narrative we're trying to help our clients with. Um, and yeah, I'd love to dive into definitions and to talking all about how this impacts our businesses because it's it's a big yeah. deal. Let's start with definitions because I think that's a great place to just kind of figure out, um, you know, what all of this means or have a working language for all of it. Even yeah. though we are therapists. Um, you know, again, I don't think codependency was a big topic when I was in graduate school, right? And learning to be become a therapist. So maybe let's start with definitions and and go from there. Yeah. So I define codependent thinking as chronically outsourcing our wellness, validation, and worth. So we turn those things over to everyone and everything outside of ourselves instead of sourcing it from within. So then we're in this perfectionist, people-pleasing spiral where we need to look absolutely perfect to everyone, lest they confirm our, our thinking that we're not perfect, we're not worthy, we're not okay. And we have to keep people pleased with us for the exact same reason. So I really talk about codependency uh, or codependent thinking rather as a mindset and not a label. I really don't think labeling ourselves as codependent serves us. And I think it keeps us really mired in believing that we are a certain way, which blocks change. Yeah, that's well said. Um, I can tell you've said this definition a time or two. <laughs> you got a couple two three times. <laughs> um, you know, my my own, you know, imperfect definition is kind of like if I'm explaining it to a therapy client, it's kind of like I can't be okay if you're not okay. Totally. My partner is sad and therefore it's a it's a crime for me to not be sad, right? For me to be okay and just be there with them and to not take yeah. their feelings on as my own. I can think of a million ways this shows up for a therapist. Mm. Um, I just got off a call with one of our, um, uh, m my coaching clients who said, you know, um, I raised my, f raised my fee and I feel really bad. Mm, I hear that a lot. And so now I'm thinking about not raising my fee, right? And I'm making decisions about my business out of um, this fear of, upsetting someone right or upsetting mm -hmm. one out of 20 clients yep 
Yeah. I mean, I've had that conversation from the client side when I've been looking from a therapist. We get to the rate part and people start tripping over their words and start saying, my rate is um, uh, half a mini Snickers bar unless yeah. you can't afford <laughs> that. And then like actually just the wrapper, well, actually I'll pay you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. My, yeah. My rate is whatever will make you not mad at me. Um, right. And it's one thing if that's from an equity standpoint, right? And you're mm -hmm. rocking a sliding scale and it's for smart yeah. political right reasons. But if it's from people pleasing, it, it's a disservice to you and the client because the client is learning how to be. I mean, their mirror neurons are firing the second we get on the phone with them and they're learning how to be in the world from what we model for them. Mm. Yeah, that that's huge. I mean, Going back to therapists in particular, it's no surprise that a lot of us got into this work by being some sort of mediator in our um, families of origin, yeah. right? Something's not okay at home, and we are the the good, calm listener who can set our feelings aside for the sake of the family or mom and dad fighting or yeah. whatever it is. And that's an extremely adaptive skill that we then go on to, um, you know, do professionally so part of it is kind of who we are but um there's this there's another part of um i guess at what point is it problematic dysfunctional and healthy and so how do you think about that element um right know? so i really think about the intention and the motivation is are you doing what you're doing from obligation from feeling like you're not safe your nervous system can't be grounded you're not okay if you're not fixing and taking care of everyone else right is your nervous system in this kind of a stance right we get into that transverse plane of energy and movement are you here with it, these decisions and this work or are you in an expansive stance with it or are you doing this work because you're passionate about it and you love helping people and you love being supportive? Because from here, we're boundaried, right? We don't take that call on a Friday night. We don't meet with people outside office, right? We have boundaries, mm. right? That again, take care of us and the client and our families and everyone we love versus from here, right? Yeah. Yeah, I had another you know call today with a therapist who said, um, you know, I have a client who is constantly um, uh, kind of taking advantage of my time or moving the session around a lot. And I just kind of go with it because, again, I don't want to piss them off. Or they call and say, hey, can you meet later today? And for the therapist, it's like, even though I really can't or that would, <laughs> you know, uh, interrupt yeah. my family time or my time with my partner or whatever. It's like, um, uh, sure, sure, I'll do it. And there's a there's a cost to that potentially and also sets a precedent for um you know, if I did this once, there's an expectation to do it over and over again. And you're my therapist. You're this nice, friendly, helpful person. And when you do set boundaries, sometimes we have people who uh, who don't like that, right? Who right. push back on that. And we also help lots of people who fundamentally struggle with boundaries. So, right. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when we stop people pleasing, people stop being pleased. And for me, it comes down to the question of whether I want this other person to be pleased with me or if I want me to be pleased with me. And I would always rather be peaceful and joyful and calm and grounded and centered in myself. And I'd much rather walk through the world from my dignity and my integrity. And maybe someone's upset with me than to make a choice that's a disservice again to both of us. Because what's that client learning about boundaries? Mm -hmm. ah, you can walk right through them. Oh, people mm -hmm. can walk right through my boundaries. I, I shouldn't set them. Why why should I set them? They'll they'll mm -hmm. be ignored. They'll be pushed around. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, how do you start getting better with this stuff? How do you start to, um, yeah, I suppose have better boundaries. Yeah. So boundaries in particular. So the general framework I use is witness, allow or accept, and then take action, right? We need to witness ourselves and, and be that, that force, that energetic force that's, um, outside of us watching us because mm -hmm. so often uh, we identify so strongly with these traits and these habits. They're just the neural grooves we live in. And so we don't even see what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking. And so we need to step back and to really take stock of and take inventory of our own habitual thinking and the somatic resonance of that thinking. From there, we step into allowing and accepting, meaning um, we don't, we stop uh, negating ourselves. We stop responding negatively to our inner children and to those voices in our head that say whatever they're habitually saying, right? That urge us on to continue to, to not set boundaries or to sort of swim in these codependencies. We allow them to be, we meet them with love, and, and that's when we can reparent, right? And we can show up for our nervous system uh, with a different kind of love. And it's only from there that we start to take action. Because if you try to set a boundary before really bearing witness to how and why and when and where you're doing it and what nervous system state you're in when you're doing it, I don't think it's going to work very well. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, not well right? at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And so, too, if we haven't stepped into deep acceptance, right, which an acceptance, of course, is not condoning. It's not saying this is OK. It's not saying, you know, this is as good as it's going to get. It's saying I accept and allow that I have been this way due to my socialization, due to my conditioning, due to what I learned in my family of origin. I'm no longer going to beat myself up for literally doing and being who I was taught to be. Mm -hmm. I can accept that I've been this way. And now I can take action. There's some, you know, historical precedent uh, for, for many of us, right? Um, meaning, where do we learn this stuff? Uh, when I, for instance, the template could be when I set a boundary, um, I get yelled at, right? right? Or people get mad at me or people experience right. that as you don't love me. Right. Right. Or if you're, I don't know, you're dealing with, uh, you're, you're a kid dealing with your parent. You tell your mom, hey, mom, I, I can't help you with that. Or mom, right. I, um, you know, I I can't mediate your relationship with dad. Right. And then there's a consequence to that. We learn, right. well, setting boundaries was a bad idea. So I probably shouldn't do that again. <laughs> I should probably just be the family therapist or whatever is expected of you then. And then you carry that on as the template right. for the rest of your life. And it's kind of like a fear-based template in a way, right? Or Completely. this feeling of, yeah, if I set a boundary, people leave me. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think shame can come in too. Right. There's something bad about me. If I want something other than what the family system is dictating, I should want. Right. Which is to triangulate with my parents, to be enmeshed mm -hmm. with my family and therefore to be enmeshed with my partner, or triangulate with my partner or wherever this shows up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it really is in sitting with it and, and really finding that profound compassion for ourselves. It's only from there that we can begin to make change. Mm. I, I want to hear more about that. Um, yeah. we, we're, we're starting to get some questions here oh, in cool. the comments, which is great. So again, if, if you are here live on YouTube, please feel free to start asking questions here in the comments. Um, 
um victoria your video is frozen i'm gonna remove you oh, and no. add you back and then i'm also okay. <laughs> gonna take a breath here and add um our producer jenna who's here to, to co-host with me so um let's go ahead and do that And there we go. Um, Jenna, go ahead and give a quick introduction of yourself while I get this question pulled up and we'll keep rolling. Hi, everybody. I'm Jenna. Um, also nice to meet you, Victoria. So nice to happy you. to have you on the podcast. Um, so I'm Jenna. I'm an MFT trainee. I currently work in substance addiction. I work at a residential facility with all males, um, mostly veterans with PTSD. Um, and so that's where I'm currently at. I'm very new in the therapeutic world, but um, codependency and addiction are go hand in hand. And so this topic is bread and butter. So really look forward to this conversation. Cool. Um, I got our first question here. Kate asks, uh, when you're wanting to give billers another chance, is this a sign of codependency? What are the best practices or how many chances do you give people that you delegate things to? What are your thoughts, Victoria? Yeah. Um, you know, so hmm, is it a sign of codependency? I think, again, I would look to the intention and the motivation. So what's your goal here, right? Onboarding folks onto your team, new contractors, new VAs, new billers. It takes a lot of time and energy to find people to train them and to bring them into your world. So if you want to give them another chance because it's the overarchingly best thing for everyone involved, I don't know that that's problematic, right? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily jump to labeling it, you know? And I think that's something that can happen. I think social media is a huge part of this. We're, we're quick, and I'm not saying you, Kate, but we collectively are quick to label, you know, oh, he's just a narcissist. Oh, that's a toxic person. Oh, that's so codependent. When there's so much nuance to this that I think really um, it, it, it requires we pause. Right. So I don't think it's inherently codependent to give someone another chance. Just what's your intention? What's your goal? So a question I always teach my clients is to ask themselves what your reason why is. And then even more importantly than that, do you like your reason why? Right. Do you like the reason why you would give this person another chance or bid them adieu? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would. You know, I'd say my answer to this question and just speaking really as a, as a business coach, I was, I was just telling our mastermind group this morning when I'm working with a new person, whether it's a, it's an employee or a vendor, you know, who's kind of serving my business, like in this case with a biller, um, I, I tend to be more on top of them early on as yeah. we are you know, developing a working relationship. They're gaining my trust and, um, and, and some people fear that that's going to be, you know, um, that's going to be problematic or I'm going to hurt their feelings or they're going to feel like, wow, my boss doesn't really trust me. And I think being also just being clear with your feedback is, uh, you know, they say clear is kind. And so in this case yeah. with the biller, um, I would say, are you not giving feedback out of fear of not being liked? Mm. If, if so, that's problematic, right? Yeah. Um, so when your biller screws up, telling them your feelings, giving them your reaction, I think is actually the kind thing to do that this error happened. This is unacceptable. Um, what do we need to do to make sure this, this doesn't happen again and being as clear as possible and letting go for a second of our fear of being liked so you can give the feedback and be a better business owner. Right. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And if we back up even before the moment of the error, 
really coming to understand why the error happened. I know when I was new and running my private practice, I was nervous to tell the people how to do their jobs. I was scared, right, from that same people pleasing and, oh, I'm new at this and maybe they know better and what do I know? So I wasn't clear. I now have a 40-page SOP for my business and mm. everyone who works in my business knows exactly how to do every single thing right? It's clearly written out. There's a video, there's a link, right? It's, it's detailed um, because clear is kind, right? To your point. So asking yourself as well, was it, you know, was I detailed enough before the error? Yeah. Yeah. I right want to touch in on this as well. Um, I think perfectionism is a huge uh, factor in this. When we hold ourselves to an incredibly high standard of perfection, then we expect perfection of other people. And so when we go back to talk about other people's errors, we can come and have the fear maybe that we're going to be super harsh with them or that we are going to be hypercritical of them. And that inner critic that we have is going to be projected onto them. Um, and so it's that kind of um, releasing that attachment to to um needing to be right and needing to be perfect and understanding that mistakes happen as well um that detachment piece that victoria was talking about before in the last question or the last conversation um detachment to is really important as well we've got another question here uh, lauren asks what are some warning signs that a practitioner is being subtly codependent or reverting back to codependent behaviors that they thought they'd addressed mm. such a such a great question and i love what this uh, brings up for us right which is that this is a spectrum and i think people often when thinking about codependent behaviors and codependent thinking do think of the extremes right of enabling and and substance use and think of sort of the old model for thinking about codependency um so subtle codependent signs the things we've been talking about and touching on right not having clean clear boundaries or stating your boundaries and going back on them um, not prioritizing yourself uh, in your own practice and putting your clients ahead of you in a way that's deleterious to you and therefore the practice and the relationship um, not taking enough time for you right so if we go back to our working definition of codependent thinking when we source our worthiness from everyone else and everything else in the world, we need to overprove ourselves all the time, right? We overwork, we don't rest, we don't take relaxation, we don't take breaks, right? So, so looking out for that overworking over and from the energy of overproving. Um, I, I can pause if anyone else wants to jump in. I could also go on for hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're definitely going to go on for at least an hour. So that's good. <laughs> We, Lauren has a, a continuation of her question, which, which I think is great. And um, by the way, Victoria, we're getting your video frozen. So I'm doing this fun trick where I remove you and oh, add you back. So I'm so sorry. I don't know what's happening it's, over it's here. It's kind of like an anxious attachment where I kick you out and bring you back <laughs> in, kick you out and bring you back in. But it's nothing I think that's disorganized, actually. It's very disorganized. Yeah. Um, whatever it is. It's, I think my it's internet not, service not is has disorganized attachment in this moment. Yeah, that's where yeah, my role is. Just looking, but, <laughs> <laughs> just on you. Dad the worst. The worst. Uh, Lauren asks, do you have any tips to alleviate the distress, which again, Victoria, you were just talking about, associated yeah. with breaking codependent habits? Yes. Do yeah. you have any recommendations for books or articles on codependency? So to the former, uh, somatics. So coming back to the body, right? So 
often as we begin to move through these habits and begin to release them and, and find another way of being, another way of relating, another way of moving through life, uh, the body can be a beautiful resource. So remembering to connect in with the things that resource your nervous system and bring you back into ventral vagus. So so often folks will try to set, set boundaries or uh, take other steps to step out of codependent habits from sympathetic or from dorsal. And, and we know that's just not going to work, right? That the nervous system and the body are not gonna respond well to those sorts of pushes and pulls. So really taking the time to ground yourself, to do a somatic practice, to center yourself and come back into ventral vagus with yourself um, and not you know really remembering to co-regulate. So, you know, as you set a boundary with one person, bookend it by having conversations with someone who's loving, who's supportive, right? Mm -hmm. The people who love you the most, um, your chosen family, are probably more than, than joyful to be there for you and to have a phone call or a text conversation or a quick FaceTime. I do recommend video where possible so or in person. I almost forgot what that is. Like I forget mm -hmm. to mention actually being in the presence of another human because you know, it's been a minute, but uh, co-regulating with someone else's nervous system, with a pet, with a plant, with the earth uh, to really ground yourself before, during and after. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah. Um, right what on. do you say about books and articles for codependency? <clears throat> Well, mine will be coming out in a million years <laughs> when I finish it, writing it. it. Yeah, no, I can't <laughs> even plug it yet. We're like, I'm halfway through writing it. But um, yeah, uh, what comes to mind for books for you two? Um, Codependent No More by Melody Beattie is a classic. A classic. A classic. A classic. I mean, it's her, the one I'm updating. Her um, PDF of like uh, the million traits of a codependent. Mm. Um, it's, I think so many people think, you know, codependence is just like, oh, I can't live without this other person. But when we talk about how it shows up in the workplace, it, it really bleeds into every aspect of your life. Um, so that's the one that comes to mind for me. Yeah. And then I will I will plug my podcast. So my show Go is called yeah. Thank You Feminist Wellness. It's for humans of all the many genders. And I talk all about codependent, perfectionist and people pleasing thinking um, within so many realms of our mental and physical health. Mm, yes, lovely. Yeah, I'm, you know, um, in my own clinical work, I, I've I do a lot of anxiety work and a lot of, um, you know, I used to do a lot of like exposure work, even around like OCD things like that, social anxiety, and a lot of times, you know, it's like we have the the fear of something or the fear of um, social situations, but really. I think about a lot of things through the lens of distress tolerance. I'm afraid uh -huh. of being in a social situation where I feel the physiological um, uh, feeling of distress uh -huh. and that's yucky and uncomfortable. And I want to get out of that feeling as quickly mm. as possible. So same, you know, bring it back again to, um, to, to codependency and especially for us as business owners, um, I'm, let's say you're dreading a, you know, a conversation with an employee or you have to let someone go and you're imagining, you know, the devastation that you're going to see on their face. You're also, you're, you're avoiding that. Yeah. You're avoiding mm -hmm. that situation. But you're also avoid, avoiding feeling distressed in your body. And something that helps me is just remembering that that distress is very temporary. It's very yeah. normal. It's there because I care. Right. And I'm human and that that feeling won't last forever. And it's, it's not a reason to not do the difficult thing. Right. And, as business owners, we have to do a lot of difficult things all the, time. all the time. And 
our job is not primarily just to be liked, or especially if you're an employer with employees, your job, your primary job is not to be liked by them. That will happen when you're a, a good boss who creates, you know, a good place to work and structure and people get paid on time and they like their job and those things. I, I you know, draw parallels to being a parent. You know, my primary job is not to be liked. It's to create structured environment where my child can can thrive and grow and know that there's boundaries here um and then by doing that i will be liked or hopefully even loved um right. yeah. i think also the the when you're in those kind of uh codependent mindsets you are you catastrophize every thought so there's no rational thinking there like um in what victoria said about doing grounding exercise can really give you the space and time to just get some perspective, get some distance from those irrational, like catastrophic thoughts. Um, so then you can return and, and, and be gentler on yourself. Mm. And I would actually take a slightly different tack on that one, Jenna. I would actually remind myself those, those thoughts are not irrational to my nervous system or my inner children right? They're completely mm -hmm. rational. They're coming from my lived experience. They're coming from what I experienced in childhood, right? And so the more I can help myself to see, of course, I'm having these thoughts. How could I not have these mm -hmm. thoughts? These are survival skills in action, right? And my loving parent, inner loving parent. Yeah. <laughs> and so from there, and I actually don't use the word parent as much as, as guardian or caretaker, mm -hmm. right? The word mm -hmm. parenting can be activating in folks' nervous systems. So I've tried to really mo move away from that a bit and to create a little more space, right? How can you mm -hmm. bring in your most loving inner guardian to soothe that small part of you? But of course is freaking out, of course is catastrophizing. They don't understand another way and they don't trust adult you yet, yet to really have their back in these challenging moments. Mm -hmm. um, the other exercise I'll offer in a moment like that is to do worst case scenario, best case scenario, likely scenario. And so when we do this, we give those catastrophizing parts free reign to be wildly fully expressive in all of their pit of despair fear for us, right? We're at the bottom of the pit, the albino's coming, it's a terrible situation. This employee is going to hate me. They're going to talk trash about me everywhere. The world is going to explode. They're going to burn the clinic space down. Like really let all the worst case scenario fears out. And then the best case, right? They're going to tell me this is the best decision ever. I love you so much. You're amazing. You know, go wild and then bring it back into reality. What's likely going to happen? They're going to be bummed. Oh, wait, that's the end of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We thought you froze. I thought you froze. Yeah. a dramatic <laughs> end because you are. Your video is quite frozen. I'm sorry um, about the video. Ugh. No, it's okay. Um, yeah, it's it's really funny you bring this up because um, this morning in our mastermind groups, the, the talk I gave was around dealing with fear and uncertainty. Mm. And a lot of us, our brains are kind of wired to identify and eliminate threats. Sure. And so we have that that monkey mind that's there for survival. But um, I encourage people to do what, you know, what some people call fear setting, similar to what you just said. Imagine the full catastrophe scenario, but then imagine how you would deal with it, right? Mm. If the fear, for instance, let's say, you know, again, I had another client today and the fear was, Oh, the idea was I want to launch something new, this mm -hmm. this new like retreat for therapists. And the fear is people are going to judge me or think, 
you know, who do they think they are that they're launching this, this new thing, or you don't know enough to launch an event like this, or, you know, to, to put yourself in this expert chair, whatever it might be. Okay. And rather than me trying to reassure this client say, that's not going to happen. I'm sure people think you're awesome. I don't know that. So that's not going to go anywhere. And also, um, if it, so if it did happen, let's say they, they do judge you and think the worst about you. They think you're an idiot or whatever, right? They think you're phony. They think you're money hungry. Go ahead and imagine all those things and imagine how you would deal with it. Could you be okay if they thought those things when you can free yourself up from that full catastrophe image, you're free to go forward and do the thing you want to do. Um, Next question here from from Lena, and um, I'm pretty sure I know this, Lena, so it's great to see you. Thanks for being here, Lena. Um, she says, I think there's a rub between codependency and the field of therapy where we are trained to always consider multiple viewpoints and perspectives, right? It's like my mentor, professor, wrote an article called When Empathy Hurts, right? Mm. The second part of her question uh, that um be good for you, Victoria, is I get caught up in uh, wondering where does good clinical practice and codependency begin um can you speak to this and of course now my camera sure, is out, so it's, it's, like, it's like whack-a-mole but it's contagious you got my voice um lena can i get a little more from you around i get caught up wondering where does good clinical practice oh end and codependency begin yeah okay He's, yeah for sure so when you're taking on your client's problems as your own when you are more concerned with fixing them uh, and providing solutions than holding space for them. Because I feel so much our job is to hold loving, non-judgmental space versus giving advice or telling people what to do, um, which I think steps into codependent thinking, right? That belief that we need to be the fixer, the martyr, the savior, the saint. And those are those archetype roles that are required of us to be lovable. So I think good clinical practice ends when we put ourselves last and we put the client first in a way that has the potential to harm the relationship and has the potential to create resentment within us. Because if we're stepping into that room from resentment, ugh, I can't believe they texted me like 14 times last week. I can't believe they moved this appointment again. We've given away our agency, right? We've, we've created a power imbalance in the relationship. Uh, and we've created a situation where we're walking in with resentment. And we cannot hold true loving space for our clients when that's the energetic that we're bringing into the room. I just don't think it's possible. So I would say that that's where good clinical practice ends and codependent thinking, codependent habits and ways of being begin. So yeah. And also just, just piggybacking on what you said, when we are invested in the enmeshment to their outcome, Mm. then we're going to get resentful when they aren't doing better because it's like, Oh, I've, I've, I've given you all the tools. I've invested all my time into you. And, and then we become attached to their success, their treatment right. outcome. Um, right. So then we're no, we're taking our clients home with us. Right. We're not able to disconnect from that if 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 we are, um, yeah, if we have investment in that outcome. And I'd say that that's a really colonial way of thinking, right? That I know the best outcome for them. That's impossible for us to know as the clinician sitting across right. from them right? Only our client knows what's best for them. And when that doesn't align with our thinking, imposing our viewpoint on them, not a great move, right? <laughs> for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. there's a therapist that I, um, a, a lot of folks watching might know, uh, Terry Real, mm. um, Relational Life Therapy. And um, 
you know, he says to that therapists have to practice what he calls a spiritual detachment from mm -hmm. their outcome. And it doesn't mean we don't care. It sure. means that in a lot of the work we do, in a lot of cases, we try our very hardest. We are busting our tails, helping a client, you know, two sessions a week, trauma therapy, EMDR intensive, right. all this stuff. And then they still struggle or they get worse, God forbid, or they don't leave that um, abusive relationship or whatever it is, or they go back to it, whatever it is. And as a therapist, if your worth is attached to their outcome, that's well, what I just said when you're out of the room, <laughs> long and difficult career. Um, yeah. Or a short and difficult one. Yeah. Sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> right. exactly. yeah. Um, but it is difficult because we also derive our worth from our work. And that's, uh, that's quite human. But back to Lena's point, you know, the codependency piece, again, it's like my working definition is, you know, I can't be okay if you're not okay. Well, if, for a therapist, then that would mean I can't be okay if my client's not okay. Or if I have a client crisis, I need to kind of be in crisis until they're not anymore, which is, I, I think, a common experience, or especially for, for therapists that are that are newer and it's you know your first time seeing a, having a client in crisis or whatever it is, it's difficult to know that they're really suffering and there's only so much you can do uh, about it. And sometimes people will keep suffering for some time and that may or may not reflect your work or your value or how helpful you've been or not been or, you know, should you do more or should you give them your cell phone number so they can text you anytime. Why do you think, Victoria, that people do, especially codependents, suffer when other people are suffering and almost bring themselves down to that level of suffering? What What is that about? Yeah, I, I, I think people with codependent thought habits do that uh, because we believe that if we match empathy level, uh, so many things will happen. They'll see how much we're suffering with them, which will create reciprocal uh, empathy. We believe that, you know, there's a lot of tit for tat thinking, right? I'll suffer along with you this time. And I'm going to store this back here. And when I need you, I'm going to call on you, right? But mm -hmm. again, I live from obligation and self-abandonment. And so I expect the same from you. And I expect I'm reading your mind all the time. So I expect you're reading my mind as well. And, and you know the game we're playing. But of course, the other person is not really clued in, right? They've got, haven't gotten read in on that. Um, we, when we grow up with, with chaos and stress, distress or trauma, urgency is our currency, right? And so we get so habituated in our nervous systems to things being urgent, things being now, things being chaos, things being drama, stress, strife. And so it becomes this cozy place for our nervous system. Right. And so any invitation to join someone else in that sort of a spiral just feels not only comfortable, right, the chaos, the comfort of that chaos, but it becomes something that feels demanded of us if we're to be seen as worthy. Right. Mm -hmm. It also comes back to the perfectionism. I can perfectly understand you. I can perfectly see your terrible suffering. Won't you like me now? Won't you validate me now? Right? If I hand you the tissue time after time, won't you say, oh, I just don't think I could get through this without you. Right? And then you get that little hit, you get that little ego bump, and it keeps this cycle going on and on. So true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's, uh, there's certainly something to be said about that it feels good to be needed, right? And again, a lot of therapists, we end up here because it feels good to be needed or it's just easier to be in this kind of helper role rather than to look at ourselves or handle our, our, our own stuff or to receive yeah. help or receive therapy. And yeah. um, 
It's a great buffer, really. Yeah. <laughs> against feeling our own feelings for yeah, sure. It could be the ultimate buffer, right? Yep. Of um, I'm over here in this, this chair, which it's like, which chair is more difficult in the therapy room and right. how much has the therapist sat in the client chair? I think that's quite important mm -hmm. to say the least. For sure. Br bring it back a little bit, Victoria, to uh, just thinking in of our audience, these are therapists in private practice. And the main purpose of our show is to help them, um, with their business. We look at the business side of, of therapy. And so when, I guess I'd say like when, when someone has kind of done the work or committed to doing the work around the stuff, codependency, perfectionism, et cetera. Um, what does it then look like in your business to mm. be operating from a healthier place? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I love that reset towards the positive. For me, I can speak to my own lived experience. It means that I, I have boundaries around my hours and my availability. I'm not mm -hmm. on Slack on the weekend. That's not mm -hmm. happening. Um, on Saturday morning this past week, what, one of my VAs texted me um, because they do monitor Slack for suicidality, right? For 911 call kind of things. And she said someone was in crisis. And I told her to please use the script we, we use, referring her to call 911 or report to the emergency department because that's that's not what I'm available for, you know, outside of the scope of, of what we're doing. And again, this is a coaching relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but in my, my private practice, in my medical private practice, that's not what I was available for either uh, as a specialist consultant. So having really clean, clear boundaries, knowing what's yours and what's not, and not taking on more than what's yours, not resenting your patients and your clients, uh, and really having this deep felt acceptance of them as exactly who they are and exactly where they are in their process, and not taking that on, like we've been talking about, to mean anything <clears throat> at all about you, your worth, your value. Um, charging a rate that means that you are have a living wage, that you have whatever comforts you want to have in your life, right? That you aren't uh, suffering for the business, which can be really challenging from these thought habits because we often think we need to be suffering to, um, we think the suffering Olympics is like worldwide, right? It's in our romantic relationships, it's at mm -hmm. work, it's everywhere. We have to suffer to prove our worth and our value and we don't. And so we charge what we want to charge, what feels um, good for us. Uh, and again, always putting that equity piece in there. If we want to have a sliding scale, I always do. I always do at least 20% of my work scholarships. We have that, but from a dedication to equity and not from an obligation, right? That sort of, oh, I have to suffer to prove that I'm worthy, right? Um, those are some places I would start. What does that look like um, in terms of uh, coworker to coworker. So if you're working in a group practice mm. um, and you have, let's say, virtual assistants, like you said, they are um, on on the weekends. I mean, in, when you have different roles, um, how do you set boundaries, for example, when it comes to having to be always on, for example, in my position? I'm, I'm using myself as case study here, John, sorry. But um, uh, yeah. Could you say more? How do you set boundaries? You're on 24-7? Not 24-7, but in terms of, for example, your virtual assistants are on on the weekends and are, you know, looking and monitoring out for crisis. When you are not the business owner and you have different um, requirements, I guess, what would you say, how would you set boundaries there? Ah, so job-related tasks are 
requests, not requirements. Let me workshop this, right? So the person who I hired to do the weekend monitoring knew that that was the job, right? Mm -hmm. That's the job. And so uh, just being really, so there, in this case, there wasn't really a boundary to set, right? It mm -hmm. was, it was the request that was being made of her. And so uh, are you asking like if a if an employer is asking for more than you agreed to? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not saying this is done at all. By the way, right on. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 a, it can be a tricky one to tease apart, right? Because there are real financial risks for many of us, um, largely depending on our social location. If we say no to an employer right? We could lose our job, we could lose a recommendation, we could lose uh, our status and goodwill in whatever community we're in. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, I would rather have to know that I was living from my my dignity and my integrity and was taking care of myself. Um, and that just doing that, knowing that it could mean the loss of a job or a position, um, and sometimes we do need to make prudent choices uh, to stay in a role that's that's not aligned with what we ultimately want for ourselves because of you know family financial constraints because of I don't know looming global recessions right um, other reasons mm -hmm. that it may be prudent to uh, to temporarily do do things that may not be aligned long term is that mm -hmm. making sense it's it's a it's a challenging question to sort of tease out publicly, right? Because yeah. it's not a level playing field for all of us, right? So if you yeah. are an hourly worker at a Burger King and just had a baby and you really need to keep that job, it's a really different conversation than if you, you know, have degrees or multiple degrees. So mm -hmm. that's that's why I'm being a little tenuous with it because I just want to be really clear that I understand, you know, the, the complexities of late stage capitalism, um, white settler colonialism and the patriarchy like it's not not all of us get to make the same choices mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i'm saying also like joining a group practice as a therapist if they only provide you with certain hours if they only right. you know can fit you in these days or or maybe they want you to work more hours depending yeah um, so i really so, hear you when you say doing the making making choices based on your needs but also right. if you have the resources um, you, that's the, that's the, when you said about, it really is, it comes down to what can you afford to be able to do? Some boundaries are cost prohibitive in some ways. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got, got just a couple more minutes here and yeah. I want to be mindful of Victoria's time here. Thank um, you. <laughs> speaking of boundaries, like, <laughs> you can say an extra 15, right? You don't. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That other interview yeah. after this. No, she has to go. You love them more than us. No. Aww. Um, I haven't even met them yet, so. Oh, we'll good. See. So you yeah. love us more for sure. It's true. Right now in this moment, together. for sureies. Yeah. I'll text you after okay, that cool. interview. And yeah, please do. Exists. You <laughs> can text me during it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, you know, I I think to to Jenna's point slash question, you know, a lot of people and a lot of employers love people with no boundaries, right? Oof, I mean, I course. live in Silicon Valley, and people, oh, all yeah. my clients work for tech companies right? Big time. Stay on campus, be on Slack all the time. It's all like who's most available, who's yep. here all the time, who, yep. you know, they, they have unlimited PTO and then, you know, the house always wins though. Oh, Why yeah. do they, they have unlimited PTO, but statistically Nobody people take it. off less time. <laughs> right. It's unlimited. Right. Look left, look right. Well, they haven't yep. taken any time off, so I'm not going to do that. Right. So 
you know, but then from a, from a vendor perspective, um, you know, a vendor, a contractor, you know, you come in to provide a service, you set those expectations as to this is the project you've hired me for. This yep. is the scope. These are my boundaries. I'm not available on nights and weekends, by the way. And yep. again, for therapists in private practice, you have to have a very similar discussion with clients in that first session. Sure. And you have to be abundantly clear about what this is, what we do, what the scope of our work is, when I'm available and not available, right? How to how you can reach me or not reach me, what's appropriate for email. And right. I'm sure a lot of therapists listening right now are cringing, being like, wow, this John guy's so mean, <laughs> you know. Or my my grad school professor would say he's being directive, you know, by mm. you know, having boundaries. Too directive, right? You need to be right. more client-centered. Um, and anyway, you know, it's like if you start off loose, then people will violate your boundaries left and right. And there's a lot of fear of what would, well, how are people going to see me if I was more firm, right? Right. Um, or just more, more clear and boundaried. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, speaking of time, uh, Victoria, any just, I guess, final points, things that you really hope people remember from this um, uh, and, and this, this, this work that you're doing. And then of course, leading us out with um, how people can learn more about you, get in touch with you and, and work with you. Yeah, right on. The thing we didn't touch on, which is a cornerstone of my work, is the work, the move focusing less on codependent thinking and more on a move towards interdependent thinking, right? A way of relating that uh, really focuses on each member of the dyad's autonomy, that they are an autonomous human being and that they um, that we all live our best lives when we co-relate with mutuality and reciprocity. And I think that's wildly available in the therapeutic office and in thera um, for therapists in private practice to have that sort of an interdependent relationship with their contractors, with their VAs, with their billers and with their clients. So that's the move towards interdependence. Nice. That, that'll have to be part two okay, um, I'm here uh, for, for it. this show. Yeah. Uh, Victoria, thank you again for being here. It's been, uh, again, really wonderful. And then, uh, again, if you can just lead us out with kind yeah, of right how on. do you help people and how can they get in touch with you? And, of course, we'll add any links in the description here or on the podcast if you're listening to audio only. Yeah. So my podcast is called Feminist Wellness. It's free everywhere you look. You can follow me on the gram at Victoria Albino Wellness. I give good gram. Uh, you can head on over to my website, victoriaalbina.com slash private practice for a special bonus just for your listeners and watchers. It is a set of free meditations, a nervous system orienting exercise, a boundaries exercise. Those are all available for free download just for you. So go check those out, victoriaalbina.com slash private practice. Uh, and my work, I work in a six-month container called Anchored, Overcoming Codependency, in which I guide, support, and coach human socialized as women to overcome everything we've been talking about today. And there's always a gaggle of therapists, nurses, and other clinicians in my programs. And it's always a delight. It really always elevates the conversation. And you can learn more at victoriaalbina.com slash anchored. Excellent. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. Um, thanks again for, for being here, Victoria. Um, and for our listeners, um, we'll be back here same time, same place a week from today. Um, that's uh, next Tuesday, the 21st, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Um, we're going to do another, uh, it'll be another solo episode, uh, just a live Q&A with me here on YouTube and then repurpose for the podcast the next day. So make sure to join us. Um, if you're looking for help with your private practice, you can head to privatepracticeworkshop.com. As always, easiest way to get started is to book an initial um, uh, coaching session with me where I can help you and get you pointed in the right direction. So um, thank you all again for being here, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Take care. Thank you.